0: Welcome to part two of a load of BS with me Daniel Ross and more importantly hot Sicilian red Joe Fattorini, wine expert, writer and TV presenter. Joe is not a hot Sicilian actually, but listen into to the end to hear his top wine ideas from the region. And check out last week's opening instalment if you haven't already. It was a really entertaining show as we cruise topics from wine sommelier BS to Kylie's Rosé. So here we go for part two. We pick up where we left off on the subject of wine associations and ask why we drink champagne, where innovation in the wine industry is coming from, its environmental challenges, and Joe's exciting new venture, Pix.com. Enjoy the show that's fascinating I also want to build on this question of association because there's also strong association between wine and occasion of course so for example why do we drink champagne to celebrate I think the, the champagne very very
1: successful <laughs> and they managed to sort of marry that together and this was that little Britain carriage wasn't it champagne for everyone and it becomes this byword and so you sponsor Formula 1 although interestingly the sponsor- Formula One sponsorship has moved to somebody else brilliantly called Ferrari and they are no relation but they very cleverly managed to team themselves up and it's probably cost them an awful lot of money but of course ferrari sparkling wine from northern italy now becomes associated with racing cars but yeah it it was over a long period of time you know champagne is a fundamentally the world's ugliest wine region i mean champagne was will be horrified but it's really grim first world war battlefields it's this low rather featureless part of northern france the weather isn't that great it sort of lumbers around a little bit the vineyards it covers a very large area Champagne is a significant part. In terms of other wine regions, it's a big one. And it produces at a rate that good vineyards might produce, I don't know, 30, 40 in a, a, you and know, a hectare. Champagne is like 80, 90. They are massively productive. It is possible to have a very, very good living from a couple of football pitches. You're set up for life with two football pitches in Champagne. Because not only can you produce an awful lot, you can charge very, very large amounts for for what you get and that is because it is exchange value it's not really in, in the product itself and that's just been built up and there's a really interesting tension in the industry there because broadly the people who grow the stuff and the people who market it are two separate groups so you get the big champagne houses often don't own that many of their own vineyards they will usually own some and you get enormous numbers of growers who don't actually make and market the stuff at all for all that we talk about there is a sort of talk in the wine world of grower champagne which is lovely and it's wonderful and not knocking it it's pretty small big compared to these bigger brands. Actually, that separation of powers has served them very well. It's also led to a constant tension between the growers who have the whip hand when there aren't very many grapes and the brand owners who have the whip hand when there are lots and lots of grapes and they're sort of saying, well, no, we need to go and invest in this sort of brand value. And and there's a constant tension actually there all the time.
0: Well, there's a follow-on question to this which interests me, and that's why is it that France still has this stranglehold on our wine choice perception in even fantasy. And following that, why did it take so long for English wine to make a name for itself? I I remember somebody once pointed out the entire estate of English vineyards.
1: This was probably in the late 90s, early noughties. If you clubbed the whole lot of the English wine trade together, it could still count as a single experimental vineyard in France that would be excluded from the rule. So France and Spain sort of toggle with each other so france spain and italy toggle is the biggest wine producing countries in, in, in the world so france is just a very big producer and it's been a very big producer of wines that largely through their appellation system, because they were early adopters of an appellation system, and there were strict enforcers, created essentially a series of brands that had some measure of control. The Italians came into, you know, they created their DOC system, they created it later, and were much more lax about enforcing it, and allowed all sorts of people to have mad DOCs, to the point that then you have this thing of super Tuscans where they decide they're not going to have DOCs, they're going to opt out altogether. It's probably Italian carry-on of everybody broadly writing their own rules all the time. In France, they had a central set of rules. They applied it with a sort of French rigour. It was like the Académie Française. And those names then became these sort of bywords, sometimes not with entire justification. There there have been some big scandals in French wine rulings. They also, and I think this has been where the French really sort of hit up, certainly the Bordeaux classification system was created in a pyramid post-revolutionary country, pretty much mirrored the social architecture of the day. So you have in the Bordeaux 1855 classification organized by Napoleon III, who interestingly has a very close association with Berry Brothers and Rudd because he hid there during the Chartist riots. He goes back to France, wasn't a very successful emperor in many ways, but he does have the Paris exhibition in 1855 and he structures the entire system in this pyramid. So there are five classes, which essentially are dukes down to barons, if you were to think of it that way. So there were only sort of five chateaus at the top. It's a very small kind of rarefied world. And it's based pretty much entirely around price. Price and a bit of reputation goes to the bottom. What we forget now, and there's only one of them that's left, you then had cru bourgeois, which slightly hints that underneath the aristocratic classes is a bourgeois class. And then they were cru artisanal, and there was kind of crew pays out. So the whole of French society was written there. And you couldn't have had a starker thing of sort of saying you fundamentally drink either in the class that you belong to or the one that you aspire to, or you want to live like a duke will you drink First Growth Bordeaux. You know, if you are bourgeois, you don't drink anything below that because it'd be awfully embarrassing. You only drink bourgeois wines and above. And we have, certainly in the UK, we actually have that structure. You know, we never had a revolt against it. So a way to be quasi-aristocratic was only ever to really drink class growth wines. So you sort of adopt it, even if it's somewhat subconscious in the way that people do it. I think France is very clever. Bordeaux is the world's largest quality wine producing region. It's huge. So it actually makes enough for all of us to play along in this bizarre proxy game of using wine as a sort of social stratifier in that sense. That's why Burgundy has always been harder. Burgundy has Grand Cruz, but it's really complicated. Burgundy is actually much more like sort of French philosophical thought. It's complicated. One vineyard can be split amongst multiple other people, it's
0: like getting into Saussure, it's
1: really challenging so it's always been slightly the intellectual world has has gone into Burgundy and it's tiny as well.
0: Beyond these esoteric conventions in France, I want to also talk a little about innovation in wine production and one area I think that we're seeing innovation is in format. I think Covid definitely accelerated this trend because now I've seen and our friend Joe Wodzak has popularised some of these good examples there's a host of funky brands and selling unusual beers, cocktails and wine in bags, cans and cartons. I think beer we're broadly familiar with in multi-format. I think cocktails are great fun in any format, but I ask slightly provocatively, is wine the older surly sibling less willing to change or is it actually drinkers who can't countenance drinking wine from anywhere but the bottle? There's a
1: whole <laughs> lot of behavioural science going on in there, isn't there? I mean, a bottle of wine with a cork in it, it's fundamentally a 17th century packaging format with a Roman closure, the, the size is determined by the lung capacity of a glass blower. It makes no logical sense at all. It's completely illogical. And yet, you know, in Rory Sutherland's sort of psycho logic, it makes a huge amount of sense. We set huge store by it and w- we love it. And it has had, for all that we knock wine bottles, one of the things that wine bottles have done is it, it was a technological innovation and it allowed us to mature wine over a long period of time. So it's impossible to go and have pure older bottles. I mean, there are a few minute exceptions where you can do it in barrel. But fundamentally, if you want to go and have a collecting maturing, you need bottles of wine, largely with cork stoppers, you can kind of do it with screw caps. So it does have that Sort of sense. Yet, more than 90% of the wine that we drink gets drunk within the course of a year. So we're not laying it down, we're not leaving it there. And it comes with a huge social cost, a huge environmental cost. More than half of the carbon emissions of a bottle of wine that you have in your home have come from making and moving that glass in the bottle around the world. So we get this enormous problem then that there's a huge environmental downside to the quite nice feeling we get inside from having a bottle of wine. How do we persuade people that really, if you're going to drink that 750 mils or whatever it is of wine within the next year, don't buy it in a bottle? Or do we go and find other solutions? So actually, there are workarounds. So much of the wine we drink in the UK is bottled in a bottling plant, either in Avonmouth or up in County Durham. It's shipped here in big tankers and we bottle it over here so that then we kind of keep that cycle going. But no, different formats we should be using. Now I'm speaking to you from Scandinavia. We're actually the biggest packaging format is boxes. We should drink far more wine in boxes. Boxes reduces by a factor of about 10, the carbon emissions that come out of a bottle of wine. It's immensely convenient. You don't have to lug it around quite so much, and most wine is brilliantly done in it. We've then got to persuade producers to make actually quite nice wine in My favorite is the Bagnum, and the Bagnum is Le Grappin, and, and they've trademarked it, so we can't allow it. And it's a Magnum in a bag. What a brilliant idea. And it, you carry it. It's a brilliant format and you can sit in the fridge and you can have it everywhere. I absolutely love the bag. Cans. I have to say, I think it was Spell for Estate at Hush Heath in Kent. They have done a lot of research actually into refining the can. The can wasn't quite there and nobody had really researched how do we go and preserve wine in cans. They've done some extraordinary work actually to go and create a can that's specially made for wine and we should use it. One of the big challenges that we have is how do you create a social norm? Because we know so much is tied up in the bottle. How do we create a social norm? I know it's a sort of thought experiment with my very limited Swedish. In Sweden, the a common phenomenon of fleeg scam. So literally translates as flight shame, and it became a kind of social phenomenon just before the pandemic, where it was shaming to take internal flights in the country. And as a counter to that, you had talk screens, which was this notion of train pride. So people would post themselves on a train travelling to. Umeå, which is many hours away, but they would say, I'm taking train pride because I'm not flying to Umeå. I'm taking the train and, you know, that gives me pride. It had a material effect. I think Swedish internal flights dropped by 10 or 15%, something like that. Certainly had a big enough effect that the revenues of Swedia, who run the airports, were down because people weren't in airports quite so much and the train service did very well out of it. Can you create flaska scam? A sort of sense of bottle shame. Oh no, crikey, I mean, we don't have bottles here. That would be very embarrassing. I'm sure that the something that's in there it'd be a thing for ogilvy change to go and look at you know a bit like their have two bins idea you know do you have something around the social shame of the clinking of your bins that actually you can beat that by, yeah, you go and have a drink. You ought to be kind of careful because you don't want to encourage people to drink more, but it's certainly how do you create a sense where going and having a silent bottle collection it shows the environmental
0: virtue in
1: that sense.
0: Or maybe um, the answer is that you have to. we have to ask Kylie Minogue or Kanye West to put their names on a carton of wine and uh, and we'll be away. Yeah, I think that this, th- there is a lot in that, actually, and I suspect we... And there are a few, you know, there's a few of these sort of brands
1: that are coming up. Interestingly, most of them have gone like that. And one of that, certainly when you look at Jay-Z, who's bought Armand de Brignac not only is it in a bottle it's in a really massive champagne bottle covered in gold paint which means it's fundamentally unrecyclable I mean it's an environmental nightmare I think certainly key brands Philip Schofield interestingly Philip Schofield has a box well the wine show uh, we have a boxed wine brand we did it very deliberately so you can go and buy it it's uh, through When in Rome was a terrible like shilling my own product on your podcast. You'll have to cut that out later. But we specifically went and chose that in order to go and persuade people to sort of say, look, you know, you can go and buy these brilliant Portuguese wines, actually very good value, slightly underrated, Duke of Wellington's favourite grape variety is in one, Arinto. That's an interesting little celebrity thing. Arinto had a huge spike in popularity in the very early 19th century. And the Duke of Wellington imported it under the name Portuguese hock. And he was was a sort of wine importer because he really loved the grape variety. It tasted nothing like hock at all. It was this brief flurry, a kind of spike in celebrity-inspired wine drinking from the Duke of Wellington in number one London. But yeah, we created that because we wanted to underline that actually this has got one-tenth the carbon emissions of shipping a, a load of bottled wine over.
0: So he made it and sold it. And Joe Wodzak has promoted and shared Schofield's wine on his show, Drinks Coach UK, and I think thought, thought very highly of it. They're great wines, you know, and,
1: and actually they're, they're all made as a company, When in Rome. And When in Rome has built itself around importing high-quality wines and Putting them in boxes, and there are a number of these things. I mean, I would give um, a big sort of boost to so Chun-Mai and Howard Justin Houseney, who's a consultant to them, a brilliant family business called the Bib Wine Company. The Bib Wine Company makes small, very elegant, so smaller. They're not like big five liter things. They're small, elegant boxes, two liters, and I think some three liters, mostly two and a half liters, maybe of high quality grower-led wines. So one is a, a particularly good Beaujolais made by a friend of mine, Vicky Monrosier. I mean, she's a brilliant winemaker, comes from Beaujolais, makes fabulous wine, actually married to one of the grandest winemakers in Bordeaux. So she comes from this impeccable lineage you know, in her own winemaking and her family and her husband, makes brilliant wine that you get in a box. I think we need to probably highlight that you can go and get some absolute gems. And they come with all
0: of those other values associated with them as well. Absolutely. I mean, by the way, Jay-Z's fizz is not only an environmental disaster. I think it's a financial one as well. It costs $350, if I'm not mistaken. I'm really? sure is vastly overpriced by a yeah, I was, place. I think
1: people sort of say, are these things too much? And there's an element of it depends. And I once described Petrus. Now, Chateau Petrus will sell for several thousand bottles. I said it's Barefoot Merlot for billionaires. actually, You are a billionaire. It probably has the same financial impact as most people buying a bottle of Barefoot Merlot. The reason people buy Chateau Petrus it's exactly the same reason people buy Burfoot Merlot, because it's interesting they've both got the same great variety. It's essentially lots of social proof. So Burfoot Merlot is popular because lots and lots of people like Burfoot Merlot, and you see it absolutely everywhere, and it sponsors pride, and it's you on know, all these spots. People drink Petrus. Yes, it's very nice wine, but actually that's not why people go and spend thousands and thousands of pounds on it. It's because lots of other billionaires drink Chateau Petrus. So you're not buying it necessarily because it's good. You're buying it because all these other people have proven that it's not terrible. You know, Herbert Simon's satisfying. I mean, it it sounds mad that a £10,000 bottle of wine is a satisficer product. You think it is the archetype of being an optimizer product. Absolutely not.
0: Many of these things are fundamentally satisficer products for insanely wealthy people. I mean, I think Chateauneuf-du-Pape, Montrachet, those are other equivalent brands which fall into the same bucket. There are plenty of other more reasonably priced wines which do the job, sometimes often better, actually.
1: I'm always slightly wary of going and being... You can end up with a slight sort of sniffiness and saying, well, of course, don't drink Château Neuf. About go and enjoy Gigondas. Or actually, go and do, there's a couple of vineyards who are literally over the road, made by Chateau de Pap producers that are almost as good. Yeah, don't drink Morache, have Santo Band just sort of round the corner. Then there is an element of sort of truth to that. But that's one of the slight problems in yes, it's true. Yes, you can go and do that. It's a very optimizer way of looking at the wine world. And one of the problems that it brings with this is then people become terrified that they don't know about gigondas, they don't know about sort of Santo Aubant. Actually, you know what? If you're having a really massive birthday and you want to splash out, go and buy a bottle of Morechais. You'd absolutely love it. It's pretty good. Maybe I'm being an inverse snob. I know it's a weird one. And I know there's that Rory Sullen line where he says that sometimes I don't have a 50p headache. I've got a three quid headache. There are some times when I don't have a £10 bottle of wine urge, I've got a £100 bottle of wine urge. And I've got to tell you, there's no way you can increase the labour theory of value from being justifying a £10 bottle to justifying £100. Fundamentally, after about 30 quid, it's pretty hard to add more stuff into it to make it more expensive. So broadly, after about £30,
0: you're kind of paying for other value elements. That doesn't mean that they're invalid in that sense. Now, before we conclude, there's one. One other thing that I want to talk to you about and it continues the subject of innovation. It would be remiss not to talk about one of your new ventures and that's PIX, this mix of wine and technology. It's all about helping people make better wine choices. I think in very brief you'll describe it better but my understanding is that PIX is it's a wine discovery platform and the mission is it's about pairing people with wine that they'll love but you're actually using technology and behavioral insights to get closer to what people really want, perhaps what they think they want or should want. Maybe tell me a little about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Some people may have come across platforms like uh, Wine Searcher or, or Vivino. And there are, you know, lots of delectable that are all sort of out there. We like to think sometimes, you know, it's Vivino and Wine Search had a baby. This would have all the nicest bits of them. <laughs> they all sort of come out. So the the idea is you, you go and you search for wines. And it says, not only we think this is a good match for you, this is answers your problem, but also it gives you an insight. So it helps you make that choice decision. So it overcomes the choice, paradox of choice in that sense that it'll say, look, you could go and buy this directly from a producer, or you could buy the same thing from this person who's got it cheapest, or you could buy it from this person who's just up the road. It's more expensive, but you can literally pick it up in the next 15 minutes because they're a mile away. Or this person will deliver it to you, and they will deliver it to you most, quickly. Because actually, when we buy a bottle of wine, we forget that it's contextual. Frequently, I want to buy it in this context. I want to serve it tonight. I want to pick it up on my way home, or I want to send it to a friend. Or actually, I kind of don't mind when it comes but I don't want to pay any more for it than is absolutely necessary. Or I want to guarantee the provenance of it, so I'll actually get it direct from the producer. You know, I don't want to get it on their mailing list, so they'll send me special offers. So we have insights like that. Now, we don't actually sell the wine. We're a Google, really. You can imagine Google that's only for wine. And part of the answer, we know that Google has, you know, every time you use it, it becomes, what is it, one fifteen billionth cleverer. Every time somebody makes a search and clicks through, we know that the machine behind it becomes a little bit cleverer. And it starts to create interesting insights sites, because this isn't just about saying out of the world of wine, yes, I can find for you Romani Conti Latash 78, because that's quite an easy computer problem. You just exclude everything that isn't Romani Conti Latash 78. What's a much harder problem, but something that modern computing can do is to say, actually, when people in the past have asked for wines who look a bit like you, that goes with Italian food, which is what you're searching for, these are the things that have been the most useful answers for them. And it can learn those things. So there's I know, Richard Shotton's fascinating insight that on the whole, when it comes to drinks, Firefox users tend to be much more adventurous than Internet Explorer users. And that seems to hold true for wine, actually. So people who drink dry ferment are more likely to be Firefox users and Chrome users than people who go and drink Sauvignon Blanc, who tend to be on Internet Explorer. The machine finds those things. So we have some subtle bits underneath, but actually one of the key parts we came in, and it covers some of the stuff we've talked about before, it was important for us to, rather than just be plug and play, that we actually merchandised this. We got involved. We helped. With the paradox of choice. We helped to go and. Create classifications. So we have uh, collections, and we have a team of wine experts. Those collections can be anything. It could be chillable reds. It could be collectible wines. It could be future classics. Now, no computer can ever create future classics. But you know one when you see one. As a wine person, you go, "Yeah, that's a future." Actually, Western Australian Grenache is a future classic. It's one of the great wines of the world, but it's going to have. So we create those, which in a sense are choices that are tribal. My tribe. You know, some people might is natural wine funky fashionable of the minute For other people it's crusty old claros it's traditional so on We do one thing we do a little bit of merchandising it can't be for everything but we do it for wines that as we sort of work our way through this 350,000 wines that's sitting in there We looked behaviorally at what would help people make choices how could we create a thumbnail description? that was useful to people. Well, One thing we've already out on, the most important thing for a lot of people is the texture of the wine. So we have three terms that we apply to these wines. Threes is always nice, you know, Aristotle always knew the power of threes. Uh, so the first thing that we, you will see will always be a texture term and we're testing this. If it doesn't actually work, we'll try something else. The second will be a flavour term. So we know in that System 1, System 2 thing that people quite like to post-hoc rationalise the notion that they chose it around flavour. Oh, of course, citrus goes very well with fish. That wasn't why they chose it. It was because it was fresh and zippy. That was why they chose it. But citrus goes with fish. And then we give a contextual thing. Now that can be in two categories. We only ever give one. It can be, this is great for picnics. This is great wine for a date night. This goes really well with steak, those sort of shopping categories.
0: But equally, it can be
1: a value-led thing. This is made by a female winemaker. This is biodynamic. Now often people buy those because they support that philosophical viewpoint that's the reason You know, there's, a, there's an emotional attachment to why you go and buy wines made by BIPOC winemakers because you want to stand in solidarity with BIPOC winemakers that is a really important thing to you to say you, you should go and buy this wine because it has lovely black aromas and it's got tannins forget that I want to buy this because I want to go and support this group of winemakers I think it's amazing what they're going and doing so we have those that sit alongside there and you end up sometimes with odd ones I'll give you just a very it's dark horse wines I'll give you a, an interesting thing about Dark Horse Wines. Big brand. It's a big California brand. Their UK Instagram influencer is Mark Billy Billingham from SAS Who Dares Wins. He was uh, Brad Pitt's bodyguard. And he is their brand ambassador in the UK. It kind of gives you an indication of where they're leaning in terms of their brand messaging. And I actually found this on the search engine. And interestingly, one of the things it highlighted was that it had a female winemaker. And I was thinking, here's a sort of clash of the media, the planner here. would go, what? No, we're targeting all these sort of SES who dares wins people. But then, of course, I realised a very large proportion of that audience is uh, young women. It's a a huge female following. Actually, it probably gels quite well. But you suddenly end up with these rather curious, is this a clash or not of how the values of this work out? That uh, Dark Horse Wines has got a female winemaker and it's got this bruising ex-SAS man who's their brand ambassador. But then how many behavioural science, insights, values are distilled into what's fundamentally a bottle of California Cabernet Sauvignon that tastes of black currants.
0: Well, there's something of René Girard's mimetic desire behind it <laughs> uh, as a mantra, perhaps, for what you're trying to do, it seems to me. I and mean, his quotation, which came to mind was, you know, man is the creature who does not know what to desire. And here comes mixed <laughs> wine. Funnily enough, I finished that book 10 days ago. So ah, <laughs> there,
1: there is a strong element of that, that uh, yes, mimetic desire does come through. And, you know, when we looked at it, and I only could leave you with this as sort of parting shot, We looked at how technology was being employed. I'm not a great fan of it. Was it Colonel John Boyd's line, people's ideas and machines, in that order, famously quoted by Dominic Cummings. But it was that sort of notion. Actually, let's get an interesting group of people who can critically think about these problems, who come up with ideas and then apply the machine technology to solving that. Wine, as I think in many categories, has been flipped around. Somebody goes, look at that machine. It does this amazing thing. Let's find some sort of application. And in wine, it's often been palette matching. I cannot abide the notion of palette matching. Let's get a machine to ask you a series of questions, and it can do this amazing thing with a bit of Bayesian top, you know, maths at the back, Bayesian equations to pop out this is your perfect wine. And so many of these applications go, and I've got all these people who are feeding into it, and I've got all these answers, and it all feeds into this amazing thing. You know, ask these slightly obscure questions and we'll churn out an answer dedicated to you. Nobody actually ever thought of the problem. Who the hell drinks wine on their own? It's fundamentally one of the great shared products. So unless you're suddenly going to go and say to everybody who comes to your dinner party, now I need you all to take this questionnaire, and then he's going to come up with this bizarre Venn diagram that in the end will only ever, Say that Van der Pay de France kind of covers everybody. That was completely bonkers. And it has to take into account is this a high status event or a low status event? You know, is this this or that? You're trying to show off, you're trying not to show off. Do we take into account that Queen Victoria went to the Rhine in 18 whenever, whereas Kylie Minogue is promoting it over? Here? It can't work. So, yes, I'm. we're dealing with this in the, the world of wine, but actually, the big broader lesson for anybody in terms of behavioral science is that sort of thing Of let's start looking at people from the beginning. Let's look. Look at the way that they interact with this products. Let's have that kind of ethnographic. Let's do some ethnography. Sit in a load of wine bars. Watch them going and doing it. Stand in Tesco. Watch people going up and down. Go into a wine shop. My biggest insight is what I did in a wine shop 25 years ago. I watched people coming in. If they came in in a red scarlet waistcoat and tweed plus they have been beagling. They're going to drink claret. I guarantee they're going to drink claret, no matter what their palate says. Don't look at technology and go, the technology does a weird, funny thing. And certainly any platform where it's a load of tech bros who also happen to like wine, that on the whole is a terrible idea for a business because
0: they've not immersed themselves in wine's ethnography. Technology plus human insight, perhaps.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Completely. I mean, the two of them marry... I worked very closely Our a great, great CTO, Matt Franklin, this brilliant guy. And Matt's a great wine drinker. And I started, when I joined the company, I started reading lots of books about complex algebra and machine learning and AI and all these kind of things. And it was fascinating because actually many of them, certainly David Sumter, who writes brilliantly on AI Uppsala University, actually, just up the road from me. A lot of his stuff was, you know what, it's not that clever. It does amazing things at extraordinary scale, but it's not brilliantly clever. I think certainly Judea Pearl, they don't know the reason why. They're brilliant at correlating. They're phenomenal at correlating. So let's find a context in which that ability to correlate at incredible scale does something very useful, but it doesn't know the reason why. It doesn't have a causal relationship. As far as the computer is concerned, it watches wine sales spike every November and December. Why not just make every month November and December then? That's its level of insight into it. We know it's because it's Christmas. And we like to celebrate at Christmas. So we go and delve into that. So yeah, wine and technologies, it's certainly, it's been a laggard in many ways for a whole series of structural reasons. And where it's leapt ahead, it's often gone downwards. Certainly I would hold are probably technological, certainly behavioral blind alleys because nobody's ever thought we're not all Iron Rand, sitting on our own in Galt's Gulch, drinking our own wine, hating the rest of the world and saying, I don't care whether you like it. The computer told me this is mine. That's what I'm going to go and drink. That's not the way we work with
0: wine. Well, I'm really looking forward to the launch of PIX. I think you're in beta phase. Closed beta now, we're going to Open beta, actually. Yeah, because because open we're detail. thinking in two weeks. Fantastic. So yeah, we sort of open it out. And, you
1: know, in terms of us launching, I think like modern platforms, constantly iterating. Let's see what works. This is a huge platform and we launched as the second biggest wine search engine in the world. And we've been doing it for nine months. <laughs> it's slightly terrifying to realize our competitors have been doing it for 25 years. As we come out, I also describe it, it's the biggest social science experiment in wine ever because we can see if it really is the case that what's genuinely helpful for people is telling
0: them the texture of the wine. Really exciting. Let's do some quick fire questions yes, before go. we close. Why not? Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Not expelled me from school for drinking heavily. Good answer. What's your most powerful memory? Delivering my third child in the front room of our house.
1: Uh, She came rather quickly. And for anybody who does do this, make sure you buy straightforward plastic
0: and not bubble wrap because nobody else thinks that's funny when the bubbles start popping as you're delivering a child. Good advice. We'll note that down. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Uh, That is a very sort of curious question because most of it is sort
1: of out there in, in some form. I have a Master of Philosophy degree on the relationship between food and religion.
0: and one of the world's leading specialists in this. Wow, that is an unusual intersection, but gives you a niche and real standout expertise. Especially. I am a Celebrity Mastermind champion, and the Celebrity
1: Mastermind team said it was the most obscure topic they'd ever had in any form of the show, and it was two degrees west to the English meridian. I'm sure. Which book do you gift most regularly? Jancis Robinsons, 24-hour wine experts, is utterly brilliant.
0: I'll make a note of that. What's your desert island music? Bebel Gilberto, Astro Gilberto's daughter, a sort of modern bossa nova. Okay. Winding down away from work, tell me a little about your hobbies. I used to do Ironman triathlons, so I do
1: cycle and and run and and, and swim a a great deal. But I'm a great enthusiast for the Situationist International, which is, again, a brilliantly obscure thing too. So I spend a lot of time not only reading about the situation, it's international and visiting for it, but finding all the various connections and permutations and, and various sort of bits and then listening to New Order as Tony Wilson was a great situationist.
0: OK, and finally, this is a special quickfire just for you. I couldn't resist. What's a less obvious wine recommendation you'd love to share? Maybe a less consumed grape or blend or winemaker you fancy promoting? Um, the Sicilian Reds actually. There's two grapes to look out for. One's called Norello Cappuccio and
1: there's another called Frappato and they're utterly fabulous and they're very, very good value. I drink lots of them and they're sort of lighter and fresher, although they come from the south, they're sort of around Mount Etna.
0: And they're they're genuinely fine wines, but they don't necessarily merit the ticket. Fantastic. And with that, Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been huge fun and as always, I've learnt a lot and I have to say, I'm never going to drink in the same way again, but only to Thank you so much. Thank you, Daniel. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much as well. Guys, I hope you enjoyed both parts of my interview with Joe. His talents are so broad ranging. He, like my earlier guest Paul Craven, shares a generalist's worldview. They have polymathic interests, and that makes them really unique. Paul is an investor, BS guru, magician, and hickory golf enthusiast. And Joe is a wine expert, broadcaster, food and religion academic, and of course a great BS sage as well. If you enjoyed today, please share it on Twitter or with a friend. See you next time and remember to subscribe or follow this podcast on your favourite platform.